welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. In today's episode, we interview Gene Thinelk, who recently retired from his role as Director of Native Student Services at USD. Gene helped make a home for countless Native American students in his over 30 years of service at a place affectionately called The Knack, or the Native American Cultural Center. In this episode, we reflect on his life and career at USD. Gene, we're excited to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You know, Gene, you we're recording this. We're about a week from commencement. Um, you've worked here for 31 years. Uh, has it started to sink in at all yet that, you know, this is your last um, kind of commencement that, that you'll be a part of? Uh, yeah. Uh, previously, I had five years of part-time here, then 31 full-time. And yeah, so I've seen a number of cycles of students go through, and it's always so exciting to see them, you know, graduate and, and knowing that they're going to achieve their dreams with the education you know they got here at the university and and it it is kind of sinking in a little bit but it's still you know i'm still processing all that yeah obviously working with young people working on a college campus i'm kind of most curious you know i i think obviously right now you're kind of this venerated figure you might not call yourself like that but i i get that impression from the students that you work with I'm curious what you were like in maybe your early 20s. Um, what was what was young Gene like back then? Uh, you know, I grew up in uh, White River, South Dakota, and the, primarily I grew up. Uh, we call it ranching back there, but literally it's a farm, like on the East River. But but we call it ranching anyway. Uh, and and then I, I grew up uh, immersed in our indigenous our Lakota ceremonies and in fact uh, when I first went to school I failed first grade because I didn't speak English. I sat in a whole in classroom the whole year and I couldn't even understand a single word. And uh, one day I understood a word and it's like a light bulb came on to hey I understand that word and. The only reason I reflect on that is because I think it had a lot to do in my desire to learn. And I went through uh, high school at White River, then went to college. At, uh, I started out at Springfield Teachers College, and then that closed up. So I went to Yankton College and got my degree, then that closed up. <laughs> so I came over here to go to school and <laughs> waiting for this to close up. No, it's <laughs> okay. But, but I, I was... Um, uh, motivated to learn what I don't I, I've always been that way I've always been curious about learning from nature I grew out you know like we said ranching and the animals and land and nature and then when I started reading about different places different different things and it really uh, inspired my my uh, passion to learn and I've always been that way even today I, I, I still read at least three or four books a month and and things of that sort. So I'm always wanting to learn. 
Well, and that was going to be my next question was what drew you, I think, to working you know, in an educational institution. You talked about, obviously, your love of learning. Um, was that something that you always knew that you wanted to pass on from an early age, or was that something that you developed as you got older, wanting to kind of work with students and be able to give back some of the skills that you learned? Okay. Actually, um, I, I never did have a inkling that I'd be working at a university, let alone a major university, Division One. eventually, you know. Uh, I've always thought that I'd be working in different areas, and I've worked in a number of different areas. I was a uh, chemical addiction supervisor. We started a treatment center, and uh, there started a program called Red Road Approach, and that's gone internationally and uh, nationally and internationally. You know, but but and then uh, just a number of different areas that I've been working holistic health, working with. So um, I think I've been led more than I pursued. You know, so. Well, I'm curious. So what was your first position at USD? You said you worked part-time for a while? I worked part-time as a... a, a, The position was called Native Cultural Advisor. And that position was created today. You're talking about uh, diversity and inclusion. But but, uh, 30 years ago, uh, there was just a need to... Someone to be able to come in here and work with our uh, Native populations, the professional staff, as well as our students. So I did that. I, I did that for a couple of years part time, or a couple of years, uh, not as any member of USD, but just as a community member offering services, like we ran the UNEPI or uh, sweat lots for students and faculty and staff, and I'd meet one to one with faculty or staff, and 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 eventually, uh, Dr. John Williams, who ran the uh, addictions program here. Uh, he and a student uh, named Don uh, Eagle, Don Gajkowski, they thought that since I was doing so much providing for the university that really the university should do something, you know. And Dr. John Williams took that to the president at that time. I think it was Dr. Betty Asher. I think maybe it was. It might have been before her, but anyway. Uh, long story short, then they asked me to come on part time, and I did that part time, and and uh, that's kind of how we started here at the university. When did you transition then into your role as um, Native Student Director or Native Student Services Director? Yeah, Native Student Services Director. About 15 years ago, I I transferred into. Uh, I was asked to. The previous to me, you know, there's always a history to everything. And previous to us being here, there was a vibrant uh, uh, American Indian Studies uh, department. And then also previous to that, there was the uh, Institute of American Indian Studies who, who and the people within those did wonderful work. And I think people... Uh, Great people like General Moses was an individual back then, and then uh, if you take a look at Chuck Swick and Charlie Lukey and and just a number of people that were uh, I can continue naming a number of people. Um, 
that were involved in the entire process. There's a whole history of people, and that went away. That program went away, and then about that time, I was asked to come on as a director of Native Student Services from the other position. And when I was in the other position, part-time, I was also adjunct instructor at Division of Alcohol and Drugs. I teach uh, off-campus courses and stuff. So then I was asked by a dean at that time in, in his Division of Student Life to come and take over the Native Center and be the director. They pushed me up to administration. And so at that time, we took that opportunity and created a... Uh, the program that exists there today. Well, I, I know you talked about the center, the Native American Cultural Center, which, you know, has affectionately become known to me as the NAC. That's what the students refer to it as. Um, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about the history, you know, of that center on campus and, and kind of how it came into being. The, the, the NAC, let's say, originally was uh, my understanding that, uh, in the, 80, around 19, I think 78, in that area, that uh, it was donated to the university, and I think uh, under the auspices of the foundation, uh, and it was done by a local realtor, and and uh, the local realtor um, at that time, his wife was having some health issues, uh, and they received help where she lived a number of years further than the medical advice that you know this they said that she lived for a few you know a few months and but through the indigenous ceremonies that she lived another four years a little over four years and and one of the things of gratitude out of that and also i think he was an alum of usd that he wanted uh, he felt it was very important to donate the building to the university on behalf of the native students and it's his way of giving back and uh so we're forever grateful to i think his name was muck johnson i think so so that's kind of how that came about you know the foundational roots of that and then uh since that time i know i know we had an opening i think 1980 um i'm recalling right uh, and then I said the original pr- the prayers for blessings over the center and, and then we had a large gathering and the center opened up and then from that day on it's come to be what it is today. You know, what I think is interesting about it is I, I was a little I mean surprised I think the first time I walked in because it's a home right, right? It, it, is. It, it, it looks like a home and at fe- the time I was feels like, like a home yeah and it feels like a home and I think that's so important because we've done a lot of interviews with, with students who um, frequent the knack and that's what they always say it's the thing that gets repeated in every single interview is that they really view it as a second home and they'll talk about how they'll walk in and you'll be burning sage or something like that and it'll smell like their home you know where they come from and I I wonder if that has been an odd component to its success that if it was just you know another office building you know what I mean would it have had that same sort of feel um I don't know if you want to comment on that okay yeah see every culture it doesn't matter what culture it is and uh, every uh group of ethnic people have a belief system and they get their belief systems and then from their belief system comes their values, the things that they really treasure and value, uh, external and intrinsic. And then 
if you put those two together, it gives them a, a life way, or we call culture. And then within that belief system, the value system, and that life way, they get a sense of identity of who they are. So when we take a look at that, I always looked at we're dealing with three different, um, at that particular time, anyway, three primary cultures here. One was the culture of the university, which is a central culture. It has its own belief system, values, lifestyle, and you get a sense of identity of who you are, and, and you mature and progress through that process, entire process. So, and then the the uh, majority population belief systems, lifestyles, and, and then our indigenous population belief systems, values, lifestyle, and identity. And I knew that I had to work in some way to be able to to merge those and see the points where we can merge and intertwine and points where we had to compromise and work together and points where we don't touch, you know. And it's still respectful just because you don't touch in those areas like for sacred ceremonies and things like this is that that still can be respected and honored, you know. So we, we take a look at all those and then it's from that uh, perspective that the foundational work uh, that we laid over there yeah you know what has been the most rewarding part of working with young students i think that that's you know any question anybody that that works with young students is obviously has to be passionate about it but for you what's the most rewarding aspect well number one is i also tell our students this and, and relate, relate a message anyway, is that I am so privileged to be working with the future. I mean, oh my God, I mean, today uh, we have our young people that are coming in who uh, elementary, middle school, high school teachers and counselors and parents and the community work with, and then they're brought here and trusted to us. And so that's a wonderful privilege and opportunity and also uh, uh, a great responsibility. With that, we try to continue that learning within the university environment. And to see them come in and mature and achieve their, matriculate to their degrees or the fields they're pursuing and to be able to move on and impact the world. In between that entire process, I'm just a small part but a, a important part. So in that important part, I need to do what I, I have to do in terms of being able to work with all the great people within the university environment. There is not one department that can ever do anything by itself. Every single, we're in, literally, in that way, in the humanistic terms, we're an organic system. So we grow and die and move away and regrow and we continue that cycle. And and so be able to work with the entire university as one organism. It's almost like one living organism so that we can depend on each other and each department because our students interact with all the departments on campus and they're not isolated. So if we're siloed, then we'll never be able to reach out to. So for me, I'm part of a, uh, I say a dynamic, amazing team of people here at the at the university setting, and that's what helps to contribute to the Native Center. And that I get people from the law school or business school or medical school, uh, uh, school of education. You know, you you all the all the different departments that come, and then we interact at the you know, uh, at the Native Center. 
the students get to actually see these people so they don't only see them in a the classroom. They see them there, and that's why it feels like home. And when they go in the classroom, then the professors and people can recognize them, and they recognize the people. So we have to have the support and expertise and awareness of all the different departments to help us kind of excel where we our responsibilities are. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I, that's one thing that I've been interested about is kind of your passion for connecting other parts of the university with, you know, all the activities that go on at the NAC. One thing that I was fortunate enough to be a part of um, was a French uh, Francophile uh, quiz, you know, culture. And for class, I don't know if it was once a month or, or a couple of times a year, they would actually come in and, and cook a meal and they would only speak French uh, while they were doing it. And they, they told us that's a great way to learn because because if you you know have a pot of boiling water or something's on fire and you can only speak in French, you really figure out what the word for fire in French means fast, yeah. you know. But what struck me about that is then you know this meal would be would be cooked and everybody would sit at sort of the same table and it didn't matter the concentration um, of these people what they were studying. It was this great communal meal. I, I, do you think that in a liberal art? I mean, is that the strength of a liberal arts university? Is the ability to just get exposure to different cultures, different people, different interests, um, kind of just in one place? Yeah. I, uh, that goes back to when I talked about originally the person who donated the building went through indigenous ceremonies and as part of the thank you process for receiving help, they gave back. So I think that spirit is alive, that entire spirit. So in our way, we have a prayer that says, mitakuye oyasi, means all our relation. It doesn't say all our relation except that group or this group. It says all of our relation. And that's what we build our foundation on with all of our students there. The philosophy and the belief system and what we and the values that we incorporate there is that we are one community. We are one group of people. And we're blessed to have many roots like a tree, but we have many roots. And and in in the way we get along and nurture one another and, and work together and even compromise and those things is going to be fruit of that tree. You know, it's going to be the fruit of that tree. So we take a look at all of that. And then, for example, the class that you just mentioned, that was amazing. It's wonderful. Our, our students really enjoyed that. They got to learn about France, the different um, uh, regions of France, the soil. They learned about how even in a, the grapes in one, one uh, section of land, can be sitting right to the next section, but but what they produce from that grape is completely different taste and different smell, different just in that land alone. So their relationship to the land, and we say we're our Mother Earth, our relationship to Mother, then they start putting together how our indigenous worldview perspective interacts and harmonizes with indigenous worldviews and perspectives of the French people. And as we look at, there's other groups that, look, we have uh, Muslim students that come, that we have um, students from China, Japan, that come and utilize our center. uh, Because the more that we sit and talk, the more we see that we have in common, then we have differences. And those differences are our privilege and our beauty to be able to express, but the commonality helps us grow together. You know, you mentioned a little bit earlier um, something called the Red Road Gathering, which I'm just hoping that you can kind of give us a brief overview, first of all, of what the Red Road Road Gathering is and what it kind of hopes to accomplish. Okay. Red Road Gathering grew out of... uh, 
a treatment center that we worked with and I was looking at all of different uh, treatment modalities and and, uh, and then I took a look at growing my orientation as a, as a Lakota, Sichanku Lakota from Rosewood, South Dakota, and the ceremonies I grew up with. I grew up with ceremonies, uh, just a way of life for me. And uh, with myself, my grandparents, grandparents on, you know, just, just the way we lived. So I took those teachings and then incorporated, so we had more of an eclectic approach of the modal treatment modalities and philosophies and incorporated that into the foundation of what I, I'm familiar with. And out of there, the uh, Red Road came out of that based on those foundational teachings and red indicates healing and road talking about the path that we're walking on but it also relates back to the harmony within the human being the hormones the blood where our ancestors walk through our body every day in the dna and and then beyond the dna into the etherical to the spiritual guidance that we have so based on all of those i'm Put that together, and then uh, with a good brother of mine, his name's Rick Thomas from Santee Nation. And uh, over the last close to 40 years, we've been working with that, with uh, not only addictions, but in uh, holistic health and wellness, uh, community building, and things of that sort. And how many years has, has this been an annual tradition? I think I read somewhere online 28. Yeah, I think we had our 20, it might be 28, yeah. 26 or 28 one day I can't remember anymore I'm getting to that position now where I got to look up things <laughs> you know a lot of people because I think this is a, a approach that has been widely covered in media um, both because it's so successful and also because I think it's so unique. I mean, people would come back year after year after year and it really became, I think, an important part of their own healing process um, was kind of coming to the Red Road Gathering. What kind of interested me was, again, like a lot of the, you know, educational methods that I think that you've employed at your time at USD, um, right? It It's both an academic conference, but it's also a personal healing journey. And you've been able to kind of fuse these things together. And I think that that's so interesting because I think that people, you know, if you just were to call it an academic conference, right? What, what does that bring to someone's mind? You know, a stuffy podium somewhere with people half asleep. And, and it's like, it's the exact opposite. It was more personal. It was more meaningful. Was that an intentional approach or was it more just kind of a natural, like how it naturally developed? Uh, first of all, is that the reason for that is a one is that one of the things that our people say and our elders and our old people from way back, when they come to meet you, they'll say, that means who are you? And if you say what your degree is and what position you hold and things, then they'll sit there quietly and listen to you. And when you're done, they'll say, they say, who are you? And that's really important because finding out who you are internally beyond what you represent to the world is a key is a key to be able to find that balance between the two and so that's a teachings part of that mitakuyasi of our people that's really important relevant today because our young people today what one of the things that they look for uh they respect the degrees a person has they respect the expertise what they accomplish and all those but our young people today want to look deep inside of you and they want to find integrity 
And once they find integrity within you, they're more willing to learn. But if you don't show that part of yourself that has that integrity in your belief systems, your values, your lifestyle and identity, you can't separate those. Back when I think I was growing up, we just respected people because they had certain titles and positions and were supposed to. But these young people today are saying, that's wonderful, we, we respect that, but we respect even more your integrity as a human being and as a spirit. So once we learn that and we can see it and feel it from you, we're more willing to learn from you. You know, is there a particular um, year or gathering that sticks out in your mind? Um, maybe a particular speaker or just something that was going on in your own life that it, it was very meaningful for you? I'm just curious if there are any that, that really jump out. I, you know, I think uh, I just... For me, it's all melts together as one, you know, uh, and because I just think that, that we've had people from Africa, Russia, um, Slovenia, just all over the world that, that have been there. And today there's some treatment centers throughout the world that utilize Red Road, you know. And so one builds upon the other and then it also mixes with the others. So it's really hard for me to say that there is one. The thing that is more that I remember is how committed our Wasaywakba community, our indigenous community here, and how committed uh, the professionals from all the different treatment centers, like throughout the world and our tribal treatment centers, that come every single year to commit themselves to this. Some some have been coming to, you know, 20, 30, you know, the whole, uh, uh, or 20 years, you know, and 30 years prior to that, two years prior to that, because they've been helping to plan and they're part of this process. So, and a lot of the, a lot of the professionals come and, and they share there, you know. So, and it's not just indigenous people, it's worldwide, it's all people, you know, we all, in, in terms of healing wellness is that we all walk a similar path in different ways, but we want to get to the same destination. Yeah, I think one thing that's appealing, obviously, about this approach is how it combines kind of your a mental or mental, emotional, physical kind of health all in one. They, they don't get separated out, which is, I think, in maybe modern medicine, right? It's one of the critiques is that, well, you know, if you have a headache, take something, you know, that's going to take the pain away. How does this kind of combination of your spiritual health, your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, how are they connected and why is that important? Okay, one of the things that is because they're all part of the same with different expressions within the body. And each one of them has its own uh, method of operating within your body. Some with the blood, some with the water in your body, some with the fire in your body, some with the air in your body. And needing to work and uh, learn how to feed that, how to nurture it, how to expel that, how to work with those energies so that it can balance within the body. And then the teachings behind that, you know, the cultural teachings or the different teachings that are around there. So, and then not only that is that once we do that, take care of the body that our spirit lives in. Once we learn how to take care of the body our spirit lives and we come in balance with that, we can learn how to take care of the body, that Mother Earth from which we are made. So we're not separate from the Earth, and the Earth isn't separate from us. We are part of Mother Earth, and she is part of us. So as we take care of ourselves, we'll start to understand 
that we need to take care of Mother Earth. The trees are like, the, and the grass are like the silica in our throat. The thunder beings that come are the lightning in our brain that have with our thinking, and the water systems that are out there is the blood in our is the blood in our body. And when we start start talking about all of these things here, we see that we are one. We're we're only visitors here in this realm. So we need to honor it and take care of it and have its relationship with Mother Earth. You know, uh, Jackie Hendry, who's a reporter for South Dakota Public Broadcasting, she did a fantastic story on this last year's uh, Red Road Gathering. And one of the things that she talked about is that was called the, I'm going to hopefully get the pronunciation right here, uh, Wapila? Is is that the correct way to? Wapila. Wapila? First of all, can you tell us a little bit about what that concept means and why it was a little bit different? Okay, yeah. Wapila is... We are acknowledging that that was our last gathering here uh, with me being at the university and all the relatives. And Wopila is that any time we receive something is that we have to give something back. I mean, the reason I say have to is that we're so motivated inside by uh, the care and the compassion people have that they would do this for you, that your spirit is moved to return that to them in the circle of life. So that Wopila is a Thanksgiving, not just a certain holiday, but every single day, every single moment to be thankful for what people do for you, what the nature does for you, what the animals, what the birds, what the sun, grandmother earth, the grandmother moon, what they do for you. Otherwise, without them, you wouldn't be here. Well, and that, and there's this moment in the story where I think it's actually a recording of you, maybe at the very beginning of the ceremony, you know, offering up uh, food that was on the table, sage that was on the table. Just if anybody wanted to take some, they could, they could, they were, they were welcome to it. And yeah, you know, they talked about it in the story. This wasn't money that that USD provided for this stuff. This was stuff that you, you know, took out of your own pocket. Uh, this passion that you have, obviously for these students kind of extends beyond your, you know, just professional capacity, I think, as a director here at at a university, right? Uh, If you hadn't found yourself maybe here, what else do you think you could have done with the career? I mean, where where would you have found yourself, do you think? I've, um, you know, I've never really contemplated that because, like I said, I, I feel that I've learned to instead of seeking is to, to listen and to be guided to wherever I need to go. And sometimes if that just means a whole direction than what I wanted to do. In my younger years, I used to think, oh, I'm going to get this and this and this. And uh, I graduated with my undergrad in three years. You know, I took about 24 credits a semester because I wanted my PhD by the time I got uh, 28, you know. So I really pressed myself then then I had to go into the service, and then I had to do a number of things, you know, that got in the way, you know, of that, what I thought back then. But all that time I was being, you know, I, when I finally come to position with myself, of I had to come to a position of knowing that I don't know, absolutely don't know, and absolutely not knowing that there's a greater source that knows. And so what little I know I appreciate, but I depend on that source to guide me. Well, and one of the things in, in Jackie's story that I just kind of blew me away was, and it, she talks about this herself, 
you know, there's no word in Lakota for love, or is the way she says it. It's just, it's a concept that you wouldn't speak, you would show, you would live. I don't know if you can just talk about the nature of that and, and culturally how that's different maybe than, um, you know, the predominant culture that, that exists here at USD or, or in South Dakota. A lot of times when people try to define love, there it depends on who the holder is trying to express that and who the beholder is trying to hold that. You know, and uh, but in our way, the reason there's no word for love as as we know it is because to be love is to be a good relative, not a great and awesome and not not that or a terrible relative or you know just be a good relative. Meaning that if you're a father, be a father, no matter what. If you're a son, be a son, no matter what. If you're a mother, be a mother no matter what. If you're a daughter, be a daughter. You know, like a grandparent, be a grandparent. Good times, bad times, whatever. Just be that position that you hold in that moment and being true to that moment in your relationship. What greater love is that than that? To be authentic, to be true in the moment, and to have that great, that great relationship you know to, I guess my final question about the Red Road Gathering is it's such an intimate I, I think venue it's people talking about their personal struggles their loss um, maybe what have you learned from other people's stories that they've shared that you've kind of taken in your own life as you've experienced loss or as you've kind of gone through difficult times that has kind of reaffirmed um, your viewpoint of the world I'll ask you a question. What's the opposite of love? I guess it hate, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Since we don't have love, you know, in our language, the word, I mean, we have that feeling and that essence. But the opposite of love is fear. The opposite of not being a good relative is being afraid to be a good relative. Maybe there's something humanistic that happened or something but you still have to move past that, be that which you are. So you can be authentic and the person be authentic, and then you have no fear. Fear is the opposite in a stand. So one of the things that really stood out for me in all the Red Roses is that tremendous amount of compassion and courage and fearlessness that some of the people who've been to the depths, the lowest depths of their life, come back angelic come back beautiful you know and and one of the stories as I was sitting here remind me of is an individual who uh, and they came here and spoke Mary and I'm trying to remember his name but they're from Minneapolis he he killed her son murdered her son he went to prison and because of her her faith in Jesus she went to the prison and she would visit him and she forgave him in prison and he said I could be strong in prison I can fight I can defend my I did all kinds of stuff but he said the day that when she came in there and she forgave me he said I was completely I mean just helpless totally totally helpless and something broke in him and through that came strength, strength through weakness. Because 
the, the strength was that he went beyond himself now, and he didn't think he was ever capable of being forgiven. Yet here's the mother, and Israel's his name. And today, they're like mother and son, and they're going around talking to people about forgiveness. That is amazing, right? And then, then another one was Fred Lufskin, Dr. Fred Lufskin, Stanford University, came and presented on um, forgiveness and how he worked with the Holocaust survivors and how the Holocaust survivors visited back where they were. And then yet still, as a group, they forgave the oppressors. Powerful, powerful presentation like that, you know, and how forgiveness is being used in Fortune 500 companies with, with uh, IPAC works with Fortune 500 companies. Mark Samuels, his name, and how he talks about forgiveness was absolutely essential in working in major organizations. So we had all these different people, then people from our reservations who come and talk about overcoming diabetes, coming overcoming. Uh, cancer, things like this, and addictions through indigenous ceremonies. And, and that's all of that was involved. So it was just really powerful. They, they, the people put it on. I was just privileged to be able to put it together. Um, you know, you talked about, you know, the, the opposite of love being fear and not hate. I'm curious, is then fear a prerequisite for hate? Or how does fear necessarily yeah. fit into the equation with time, negative emotions? A lot of time negativity and negativity, the, the energy is energy. Good, bad, or indifferent, it's just energy. But what the value that we place on it and the behaviors that we place on it. So if you take a look at, if we don't have that openness, that compassion, what's holding us back from that? It's not necessarily the hate. It's first being afraid to be who we are, being authentic deep inside. And maybe we haven't found that being authentic so we're afraid of things yet we're still afraid to find out we're afraid to so therefore in in that being afraid not being confident not being centered is that we call it uh, being off balance you know and so in that being off balance we're we're afraid that we're not on balance so what we do is we reach out for things to try to make us be on balance sometimes it's uh, fear sometimes it's greed sometimes it's jealousy sometimes deception it's all these things to try to give a semblance of power to ourselves that we can control things around us that are uncontrollable the only way we can ever regain that balance is to look and be honest with ourselves and if we don't have it then to be guided by it either by teachers here or by you know external forces no, thank you. I, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that I know that we've worked a lot on this year has been um, representations of Native Americans. I'm wondering if you can just speak, first of all, why is representing or why, why is having the appropriate representation maybe of Native Americans so important um, when you're on a college campus? Well, I, I think uh, the, the thing comes back to not only just equality, but equity. And once you have equity and resources and things of this sort, then you can start working towards equality. And then when you start working towards equality, then you start looking at being authentic in that process and also taking the accountability and responsibility for being authentic in that process. So you can 
find out and earlier when I talked about it, I realized that there was a indigenous cultures the the mainstream you know predominant cultures and then there's the university culture so both the predominant and then the indigenous cultures we have to see how we fit into the because we're here at the university environment so how do we fit in how can we work together how can we compromise how can we to not only find our comfort here but to enhance the university we're here for a special reason you know we're here to learn we're here to and uh, uh, be able to matriculate and mature in this process so that we can end up with a, a degree and end up with all the humanistic experiences of a liberal arts college, all the interactions, and then to be able to put that as part of our education to move out. So that's why it's really important to find out who or what we have so we can find out what we need to be accountable for, responsible for, so we can see how far we can take that to interact with the university setting. Obviously, you've been here for a really long time, Vermilion Community, um, and then your work at USD. I'm curious what you've identified as maybe the biggest change um, in your time at USD. And it could be something as simple as the buildings have gotten better. Is there anything culturally about the university that you notice is much different today as opposed to 20 or 30 years ago? Okay. You know, as I worked for years, as the years move on, I see the the older that I became, I seen the tremendous progress that was made here. When I was younger, I felt that there wasn't wasn't enough progress, or and then I thought during the middle years I felt that there was some good progress. And but as I turn around and look back from the higher hill, I say, is that I see the tremendous amount of progress that have been made here at the university, um, all the way from. Uh, race relations to uh, opportunities, resources, and I think that equity is coming in more into balance and recognition of our uniqueness without compromise has come to the university. So I think these things are very, very important, vital. So there's, there's, there's a lot. We have a ways to go. For example, I think one of the dreams is that to have a, uh, just like our relatives up north are doing with the with the uh, brand new native center up there, which I've been asked to help with that, so I'm very privileged with that opportunity. But yeah, so I think that will come in the near future for for indigenous population here, our native population. You know, the last question that I'll ask, and this is not my question, so I can't take credit for it. I always preface it by saying that it's an Oprah question, so you know it's good because she's a fantastic interviewer. But I'm especially curious, maybe with your answer to this particular question, what do you know for sure? You know, you've had an interesting life. You've, I think, dealt with issues that most people try their best to maybe ignore uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, Through your entire journey, uh, your education, watching, you know, countless number of kids, you know, come here, develop, mature, graduate, go off to do fantastic things. What do you know for sure about life? Well, one thing I know, I, I know absolutely for sure about life is beautiful. It's a wonderful, wonderful privilege to be here. Um, I know that our students are are different beings than when when I was 
a young person and going through these things. When I was in my age, and I think I was towards the end of that cycle there, is that we had to learn things and singular things coming at us, and then we, we learned it and regurgitated it and gave it back out, and if we did it well enough, we got a degree, and we just followed what was told to us, and we, we, we were guided by good people, you know. So, But now the, uh, the uh, students are not singular sensory, but they're multi-sensory beings, and they can observe, learn, and process multiple things in a singular time, as us in a single time trying to achieve multiple things. And um, so they can, they're motivated with, they have access to free flowing information. They have access to methods to achieve that, have methods. So they're multi-sensory beings on, on different levels. That's why they're the hunger for finding about authenticity in beings that like themselves, you know, the teachers and people, because that's what they need for the guidance. They need the guidance of those foundational teachings and principles. But far as learning and uh, knowledge and things that they have access to that and they're learning so fast and they're interacting with the world on a knowledge basis. So it's, up to the older generations to be able to be like they're, they're like computers of the world with their minds we have to regenerate and work and nurture and hold that heart so that their innate principles and teachings and beliefs can be there alongside of that that brilliant mind that they're they're exercising and off of that I see them more compassionate with that seeking that uh, integrity, they're more compassionate and wanting to bring, join things instead of disjoining nature, waterways, air, protecting all these things because they're, they're, they're not just knowing these things, but they're feeling these things that innate, uh, etheric knowledge, I call it, that they are of the earth, part of the earth, and we need to pr- be able to protect the earth that we live in so that we know how to balance the earth that we live in. You know, so I think those are the things that I really see and I'm excited about. The the world's different now and it's going to be different for them. There's major, major transitions. In our culture, we talk about the transitions. Even now, if you take a look at the, do the research and trees are leaving the eastern seaboard in the western coast and even some of the southern seaboards, and they're moving more into Midwest and up towards north. What do they know? How can we communicate with these trees? What are they telling us? Animals are became, becoming extinct in certain parts of the world. What are they telling us? What are they? You know, what are the waterways? You know, the, so as we n- listen to our nature, it's going to teach us a lot about humanity. And I think that's what our young people are said. They have they have such a great humanity, you know, being humane. You don't have to collect things anymore. You can start looking at what you've collected and try to see how it can be shared. That's a major difference in our young people. Gene, 
thank you so much for being here with us today, and thank you for all of your years of service to USD. Well, thank you. You know, it's an absolute honor and privilege. I'm so blessed that I was here at USD. I'm forever grateful to USD. Yeah. And then all the people that work here and all the departments that I've interacted with. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we speak with Megan Jarko, Chair of the Department of Sustainability at USD. Until next time, go Yotes.